0: Poltergeist Activity A Grey Lady and a Phantom Priest. The Early Victorian Haunting of Willington Mill House, Newcastle upon Tyne. Welcome to Episode 8 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. <laughs> I'd like to start today's episode with a thank you for the podcast's first review on Apple Podcasts. The review reads Love the stories and accent, so interesting and told with a lovely calm voice. Really enjoying this new podcast, signed Sarah and Toby. So thank you to Sarah and Toby for your five star rating. Now, this story comes with a warning. It's a long one so make sure you've got your feet up, and a mug of your favourite brew to hand. The tale of the Willington Mill House haunting is one of the best known, and potentially most researched, hauntings in the northeast of England from the 19th century. Over recent years, the site of the haunting has been a focus of a number of studies, but unfortunately for the most part, they are so full of supposition and historical inaccuracies, that for the purposes of this podcast, I'm just going to use actual historical sources rather than speculation. Some of the false history is, however, worth a little debunking exercise. Willington Mill House was built in the year 1800. The historian Richardson, writing in 1842, suggests that during the construction there were reports of some deeds of darkness having been committed by someone employed about them. The inclusion of the statement suggests that these deeds may account for later hauntings. However, Richardson fails to give any more detail. The simple statement seems to lie behind the assertion by some modern writers and investigators who claim that the hauntings were caused by murders that were concealed in the cellar of the house however with no actual historical reports to go on and the fact that the house was specifically reported not to have a cellar which was no surprise due to its proximity to the river it seems that these murders are likely just the figment of someone's imagination the house itself was situated on a bend on the willington gut a small tributary initially fed by the Wall's End Burn before emptying into the River Tyne. Richardson, writing in 1842, suggested the presence of a thatched cottage on the site of the house prior to it being built. This thatched cottage then became a witch's cottage nearly 80 years later, in Montague Summers' 1927 work, The Geography of Witchcraft, in which he stated that, the mill itself is built upon the site of a cottage occupied more than two centuries ago by a notorious witch but the volume fails to provide any evidence of such. As well as this, Summers adds his own interpretations to the activity, which differ to the actual reported activity at the time, in an attempt to bolster his witch theory, so it can safely be suggested his statement can be taken with a grain of salt, if you'll pardon the pun. Building on Summers' statement though, some modern writers have gone as far as suggesting that the witch in question was a certain Mrs. Pepper an historical figure who was a midwife and local healer accused of witchcraft in 1665. Her case heard before the Mayor of Newcastle, Sir Francis Little, on the 3rd of February of that year. In the actual historic record, though, that is the only mention of Mrs Pepper. There's no actual link to Willington, and her name seems to have been shoehorned into the tale to lend what I've come to call false historic authenticity to the claim of witchcraft on the land. The house was originally built by a Mr. R. Oxon, whose mother-in-law lived and eventually died in the house. George Unthank and family moved into the house in 1806, and in the same year Unthank built Willington Mill adjacent, but not connected to, the house. The mill was one of the first steam-powered flour mills in Europe. The mill was an imposing building, seven stories high, with seven pairs of working millstones. The locality was known as Willington Dean. In 1829, Unthank's cousin, Joseph Proctor, Joined him in partnership. Proctor was a well respected member of the Society of Friends, later becoming an elder in church matters. He was also a committed member of the Peace Society and the Anti Slavery Society, and was known as one of the earliest teetotalers in North East England. The Proctors moved into the Mill House in 1831, when the Unthanks moved to Battle Hill Farm in nearby Walls End. What we know of the Mill House comes from diaries kept by Joseph Proctor as well as statements made by witnesses. It seems that all was quiet in the house until late October 1834, when the nursemaid began hearing strange noises in the room above the nursery. The nursery was located on the second floor of the house, with the area of disturbance the servants' quarters on the third floor. Seemingly every night from late that October, until she eventually told the proctors about it the following January, she heard what was described as a dull heavy tread on the boarded floor above, as if someone was pacing heavily across the then unoccupied room from the fireplace to the window and back. Sometimes when the footfalls approached the window, they were heavy enough to cause the window in the nursery below to shake. She also reported that these disturbances lasted for up to ten minutes at a time. Members of the household, including the kitchen girl, had apparently investigated the nursemaid's claim but found nothing, and then one by one had experienced the phenomenon. The Proctors were then told of the incidents, and they too began to experience it, Though there were days when nothing occurred. Joseph Proctor began to keep a diary of the incidents, with the first entry being the 23rd of January, when his wife was in the nursery and experienced the footsteps above her. The following day the same was heard by a maid, also working in the nursery, and then again on the 25th Mrs Proctor reported hearing, to quote. The step as of a man with a strong shoe or boot going toward the window and returning. A separate family member decided to stay in the nursery for a while to listen for the footfalls, but left without experiencing it. However, within ten minutes of his departure, the footfalls were so loud and heavy that the maid ran terrified from the nursery carrying the child, fearful for his safety. In one case, Mary Unthank stayed in the room for two days, but heard nothing. Proctor wrote that as of the 25th of January, six people had been witness to the phenomenon, and all six agreed that the noises were confined to that one room on the third floor, set above the nursery. Proctor wrote in his diary, the noise has been heard at every hour of the day, though oftenest in the evening, rarely in the night, has no connection with weather, nor with the going of the mill. The mill was contiguous, but there was a road between it and the house. In short, it is difficult to imagine a natural cause having a shadow of pretension to belief. Proctor noted that in discussing the noises with his cousins, the unthanks reported that they understood that the house, and that room in particular in which the noises now occurred, was said to be haunted before they entered it in 1806. However, they would seen and heard nothing out of the ordinary while they lived there. On the 31st of January, Proctor and his wife had just gone to bed, but were not yet asleep when they both heard ten or twelve bangs, described by Proctor as Obtuse deadened beats, as of a mallet on a block of wood, heard within two feet of the bed curtain, and also by their son's crib. Proctor laid a hand on the cradle, and felt a tap on the wood as if hit by a piece of steel, which he described as sounding like a knock, rather than the sound of wood drying. He also noted that 31st of January was the last day the footsteps above the nursery were heard for a while, that same evening, however, brought news from the mill. The mill foreman, Thomas Mann, had heard the unmistakable sound of the water cistern in the yard, which was set on wheels and used to bring water to the horses. It would be pulled across the yard by a horse and made an unmistakable sound due to it being in the need of greasing. At 1am he heard the sound of the cistern being pulled across the yard, but as he thought it may be in the process of being stolen, he rushed out to find that the cistern hadn't in fact moved, and the noise had stopped. Proctor also noted that this wasn't the first instance of strange activity outside the house, as on a number of occasions both he and others had heard footsteps on the gravel in the gardens when no one else was present. The next diary entry comes from the December of 1835, and states that, For about two months previously there had rarely been 24 hours without indications by noises etc., not in any other way accountable of the presence of the ghostly visitant, summer all of the inmates. A few days previously a respectable neighbor had seen a transparent white female figure in a window in the second story of the house. He then goes on to describe that on the 13th of November two of his children had seen an apparition in the house that moved into the same room and disappeared. A further sighting was reported by the mill foreman Thomas Mann and his wife who had both seen an apparition moving backwards and forwards within the house which they described as very luminous and likewise transparent, and had the appearance of a priest in a white surplice. The apparition took nearly ten minutes to fade from view. Interestingly, Thomas Mann reported that the window blind was down, but that the figure seemed to come through both it and the glass, as had the brightness been all inside of the glass, the framing of the window would have intervened, which was not visible. On the 16th of December, a visiting relative, and what is described as her bedfellow, reported hearing the sounds of a winding clock on the stairs, for nearly ten minutes. When that noise stopped, it was replaced by the sound of footsteps above them coming from an unoccupied room, accompanied by what she described as the sound of a dropped sack. She also reported that while these noises were happening, her bed was shaking. Her next odd experience was on the 3rd of January 1836, when she was awoken by five unsourced rapping sounds, followed by the sound of footfalls by her bed. Around the same time Joseph Proctor was also woken by what he described as the sound like a bullet lodged in the floor above or in the wall of his bedroom, a sound which he found out the next morning had also woken his wife in the room next to his. According to the diary entries, it seems that at this point the activity seemed to ramp up a little. On the 11th of January, numerous unsourced footfalls were heard, and the sound of a closet door was heard slamming three times. On the 17th, two nursemaids and two of the elder children witnessed loud clattering in the nursery coming from a closet. On the 21st, Mrs. Proctor reported that her bed with her in it was raised off the floor, as if a man were underneath pushing it up with his back. This happened three times and was witnessed by Nurse Pollard. Joseph also reported the sound of a strange whistling, which his son claimed he often imitated for years to come. On the 23rd, Proctor reported hearing noises in the unoccupied rooms above, whereupon one of the chairs in his own room moved, and on the 26th between 11.30pm-2am to 2 AM, the sounds of footsteps were heard in the attic, followed by movement in the rooms below, accompanied by the strange whistling from the landing. The following night no one slept on the third floor, but the sound of heavy footsteps, much like those originally heard the year before were heard by multiple members of the family, this time accompanied by the sound of furniture being moved and unexplained crashes which could be heard on the stairhead. Nurse Pollard also reported that she heard a noise which roused her as she was going to sleep. Something then pressed against the high part of the curtain and came down onto her arm, which was weighed down with the same force. The maid in the same room as her was not woken by the occurrence. On the 3rd of February, Proctor wrote the following entry. On nearly every day or night since the last entry, more or less has been heard, that could be referred to no other than the same cause, amongst them the following can be noted. Joseph and Henry have been several times disturbed in their cribs during the evening, once they heard a loud shriek which seemed to come from near the foot of the bed. The same shriek was later heard by Proctor himself in the same room, along with footsteps and noises which usually stopped as soon as an adult headed upstairs to stop the children being frightened. On the 4th of February, Another family member came to visit from Carlisle, and stayed alone on the second floor. Soon after retiring to his room, he heard noises as if something was being beaten with a mallet on the floor above, followed by a strange whistling sound. The sounds then moved to the landing and stair, and he felt his own bed vibrating. On the 7th, the sound of a box being dragged across the floor was heard in the room above the nursery, and between that date and the 20th, two reports were made. On the 17th, one of the children saw a disembodied head on the landing, The same child also reported an old woman being seen by the washstand at the end of her bed, described as having a queer-looking head, and was holding her arms so that two extended fingers on each hand touched each other. Frightened, the child hid under the covers, and the old woman vanished. On the 3rd of March, Proctor was woken by beating sounds in his room, which made the bed shake and curtain rails jingle. On the night of the 5th, Mrs. Proctor heard a box being turned over twice on the floor above her, The next entry dated to 13th of March 1840, with reports of the same sounds of movement and banging. On the 21st and 29th a handbell was heard ringing upstairs when no one was present on the floor. One of the children, Joseph, was also claiming he could hear loud voices at night when no adult was present on the floor, with a male voice saying things like never mind and come and get. On the 6th of April Proctor reported that for 9 nights they had heard knocks in the servants rooms at night but the maids sleeping in those rooms had heard nothing. After this, nothing is reported until the 4th of July, when a letter was written by Proctor to his wife, who was staying away at the time. The letter reads, Dear Elizabeth, Last night, Dr. Drury came with T. Hudson, a shopman of Joseph Ogilvy, chemist and no dog. After a long chat, they sat on the high landing. I went to my own bed. Bell in the camp room. About one o'clock, I heard a most horrid shriek from Drury, slipped on my trousers and went up. He had then swooned, but come to himself again in a state of extreme nervous excitement, and accompanied with much coldness and faintness. He had seen the ghost, had been struck speechless as it advanced from the closet in the room over the drawing room to the landing, and then leapt up with an awful shriek and fainted. The other young man had his head laid against the easy chair and was dozing, and as the ghost made no noise in coming up, he did not wake till the yell of his friend called him to his help. I called up Bell to make on the fires, get coffee, etc., but he continued in a shocking state of tremor for some hours, though not irrational. He had a ghastly look and started at the smallest sound, could not bear to see anything white. He had not been in the least sleepy, and was not at all frightened till the moment when the ghost met his gaze. They had both previously heard several noises, but all had been quiet for about a quarter of an hour, and Drury was thinking of getting his companion to go to bed. Not expecting anything more that night. Drury has got a shock. He will not soon cast off. I go to Shields tonight, and I question I come back at present. On the 17th of May, 1841, Proctor reported in his diary that while the household had been free of any disturbances since the latter part of the December of the previous year, the activity seemed to have started up again. He said that on the 29th of what I assume was April, Proctor heard his son calling, so went up to his room and heard a rustling, described like a female running out of the room, but saw no one and was satisfied no one was there. His son said he shouted out as he'd heard his name being called several times from the foot of his bed in his own voice. Later that night, Proctor and his wife heard drumming and tapping. On the 1st of June, two nursemaids complained that they couldn't sleep past 2am due to the constant running steps of bare footfalls at the foot of their bed. On the 26th of October, two of the children saw a white face looking down at them from a stair railing, which disappeared when they called for adults to see it. Then on the 13th of November 1841 came perhaps the most peculiar sighting, made by two of the children. Both claimed to have seen a monkey appear in the nursery then run through into the blue room, the youngest referring to it as a funny cat. The creature had apparently tickled the foot of the elders before shooting under the bed in the blue room where it disappeared. It was assumed for a while that this was likely a real monkey, possibly escaped from a hurdy-gurdy man, but there were none known locally, and no one else had seen the animal. Soon afterwards, two witnesses heard heavy breathing in one of the rooms, and the floor was found to be vibrating. Both beat a hasty retreat. On the 24th of the same month, one of the children witnessed a grey-headed man stamp across his room to the window, then turn and leave. Proctor's last diary account comes from the latter part of what I think is 1841, or potentially 1842, as the writings are not clear. But, in 1847, the Proctors moved out of the house. On their last night in the house, though, Mr. and Mrs. Proctor reported that the noises through the house were almost continuous, with what sounded like boxes being dragged across the floor, footsteps were heard, as were bangs and crashes, described later by their son as a pantomimic or spiritualist repetition of all the noises incident to a household flitting. With the house empty, Proctor let the premises to the foreman and chief clerk of the mill and was divided into two separate dwellings. Thomas Mann the foreman reported apparitions on two separate occasions, and numerous cases of unaccountable noises. Then in 1867 the mill itself and house were let to a firm of millers whose premises had burnt down and allegedly in their short stay they were greatly troubled by the strange activity, with one family refusing to stay. In 1871 Samson Langdale, corn merchant and proprietor of the tine manure and chemical works bought the site and later built an annex to the mill on the other side of the road. During the nights before the occupancy of the new owners, five men including one of Joseph Proctor's sons spent the night in the house, but witnessed nothing out of the ordinary. On another occasion, a small group including a spirituous medium from Newcastle also spent the night, but again nothing of note occurred. By 1882, the local press had named the ghost at Willington Mill, or the Grey Lady as she was being referred to. An article dated 20th October 1882 in the Jarrow Express stated that Kitty, the ghost, had not been seen for some time. But in 1884, an article appeared in the Shields Daily Gazette that showed the ghosts of the mill were still in people's minds. The article is entitled An Unpublished Willington Ghost Story. Of all the beliefs or superstitions we have inherited from our forefathers, there is none that retains a firmer hold upon us than the belief in the apparition or ghost that haunts the churchyard or old ruins, or even sometimes comes to our own homes to disturb our peace there. The old Willington ghost is so familiar to us in its various forms and appearances that anything new respecting it must be a matter of considerable interest. The testimony that has been borne to the real appearance of some of the preternatural object or form where the spirit of flesh and blood is indisputable, and the whole matter has been fully and ably described by William Howitt in his visits to remarkable places. His version of the Willington Ghost is known to the most of us, and the evidence he has produced in support of the appearance of an apparition at Willington is very striking. A few days ago I came across a North Shields gentleman, who some thirty years since saw the strange apparition at Howden known as the Willington Ghost. He seemed to have a singular aversion to speak on the subject, or to afford me the slightest information, and to me it seemed a singular circumstance that after the lapse of more than a quarter of a century the mere recollection of the appearance of the apparition should agitate him so visibly, but true it is that a strange nervousness seemed to possess him while he related to me the singular way in which the apparition appeared to him. Several times while he was telling me about the ghost did he say, I would much rather not speak on the subject, it excites me to talk on this matter, and so on. I however insisted on hearing the story, and the following is what he witnessed. Returning from Newcastle to North Shields on foot at a late hour one night in November, about 30 years ago, he was advised by a policeman who he met near Wallsend to walk along the railway, as it was a nearer way than following the Turnpike Road. He did as he was advised, and pursued his way till he reached the Willington Viaduct, when he saw a sight that nearly paralysed him. The night was beautifully clear, and the moon was shining bright. He had felt constrained to look in the direction of the old churchyard on the brow of the hill. Several times he withdrew his attention and cast his eyes in the opposite direction, but as soon did he feel, impelled by some supernatural power, to keep his eyes on the old churchyard, he has never been able to account for this singular attraction, but true it is, he made a strong effort to conquer the will that drew his sight, and thought to such a gloomy concentration as an old burying ground, he told me that whenever this incident returns to his mind, his will is strangely and strongly riveted on that churchyard, and thought the circumstance is hateful to him, and depressing to his mind it retains, such a singular possession of him that it is quite overmasters him, well, he had been looking in the direction of the churchyard, and had just reached the viaduct when there rose up before him the most singular and extraordinary apparition. It had the form of a person floating in the air, and rose as it were out from among the graves. It came in the direction of where he stood, for he was at once riveted to the spot as if transfixed. The moon, I have said, was bright. But there seemed to be a halo of much greater brightness encircling this wonderful apparition, for at a considerable distance he could distinctly discern the full outline of the spectre. The dress and even the features were plainly visible. It came straight over the valley and passed within a few yards of where he stood. It was the form of a man. He was apparently dressed in dark clothes, it seemed to be a brownish material like a tweed. The features were hard and gnarled, and the complexion was a peculiar indescribable sallow As might be expected under such strange circumstances, he felt anything but easy in his mind, but he was completely absorbed in the strange vision that appeared before him. Everything else seemed to pass out of his mind. A weird, awesome feeling took possession of him as this extraordinary spectre passed before his eyes, floating slowly but with a stately majesty within a few yards of where he stood. So profound was the impression it produced upon him that his legs trembled beneath him and he shook in every limb like the quivering of an aspen leaf. It passed over the railway bridge, straight towards the haunted mill, and stood upon the roof of the western wing. As he still watched, with absorbing interest and increasing nervousness, amounting to absolute terror, there arose, as if through the roof of the old mill, the slight form of a female dressed in a sombre-coloured, loose-fitting garment. They stood several feet apart from each other, and did not seem to notice each other in the slightest. An air of depressing melancholy seemed to hang over these two spectres. Sadness and sorrow seemed to bow down the man with grief, like a person overwhelmed by great catastrophe, while the woman showed painful symptoms of intense suffering and mental agony. All this took place before this eyewitness. He also heard low subdued moans and groans proceeding from the female spectral form. The light that had been observed to shine around the first apparition as it rose from the old churchyard like some bright halo or luminary still continued to surround the two apparitions. Suddenly he was seized with a desire to signify his presence, because the spectres had never seemed as if his presence had anything to do with their appearance. He gave a loud shout when the two forms both turned slowly round and looked steadily in the direction where he stood. The female was young, with a face, as if contracted with pain and sorrow. The man was old and seemed feeble and oppressed with some overpowering trouble. All at once they seemed to vanish into a thick, vapory looking substance, still retaining their form for a little, then slowly and mysteriously they disappeared. No sooner had the apparitions passed from his sight, than a strange movement came through the air as if it was some immense bird flying unseen like a ponderous eagle, and then he was enveloped as if by a sheet thrown around him, and by a tremendous force he was pressed to the ground. Then he had evidently swooned away, and he did not recover for some time but with returning consciousness, the awful mysteriousness of what he had witnessed so vividly and distinctly altogether overawed him. He looked again at the mill, but all that was preternatural had vanished. When he reached home, he found he must have been upwards of two hours on the Willington Bridge. This adventure he describes as being as vividly before him, as if it had only been an event of yesterday instead of having been a lapse of thirty years. While relating the circumstance to me, he showed unmistakable signs of nervousness and tremulous emotion. Whatever may be given an explanation of such a singular occurrence, the matter was real enough to the gentleman who witnessed it, and it has left an impression on his mind that a quarter of a century cannot efface. In 1885 Mr. Robert Hood, Haggy and son, rope makers, took over the mill and used it for warehousing and the house was divided into apartments. An interview by one of Proctor's sons with some of the residents, suggested that no one was experiencing any anomalous activity whatsoever, and in 1892 an article appeared in the Newcastle Chronicle entitled The Willington Ghost vs Cholera. The tongue-in-cheek article is entitled to the editor of the Evening Chronicle. Sir, it is now a long time since I appeared in public, but I am obliged to rush into print as my ghostly nostrils might inhale a most disgusting stench from an open sewer which the local board have allowed to exist quite near my special domain, and unless this nuisance is abated, I must give up my present walks abroad at the witching hour of night, as I have no desire to meet King Cholera, who is sure to be attacked by such a delightful odour as now greets the dwellers near the Willington mill from the open sewer referred to. Excuse this protest from your old friend, signed the Willington Ghost. By 1912, the house had been demolished and the whole site replaced by ropeworks buildings, with the Willington Mill ropeworks extending east along the Willington Gut. The site, now, is occupied by Bryden International Limited, and while the mill itself is not accessible, it can still be seen overlooking the Gut. Now, that should have been the end of the story, but no. Apart from the incidences of its disembodied footsteps in the gravel of the garden, and the sound of the water truck in the yard at the mill, All of the anomalous experiences were described as taking part in the house. In 1930 Harry Price wrote an article about the mill, but only mentioned the Proctor story. An article in 1938, within the Shields Daily News, states that very few folk in the area had even heard of the haunting at that time, with the Scotsman reporting in 1940, the Proctor case as being that of a poltergeist. In the same year however, an article appeared in the Newcastle Chronicle, which appears to have triggered the thought that the mill itself was haunted though the content suggests that the author had read Montague Summers' 1927 works, was a fan of folklore, and also didn't realise that the ghosts were related to the old mill house rather than the mill itself. At Willington Mill, not far from Wall's End, various ghosts were formally reported, including a number of animals. There was a lady in a lavender dress, and later a bald-headed man in a surplice. but the animal apparitions were the most frequent. A man standing by the mill one night saw a strange white cat pass near his feet. He took a kick at it, but encountered nothing. The animal returned, hopping like a rabbit, and again in the form of a sheep. Other witnesses averred they heard various sounds, including the trotting of a horse or donkey. In 1952, the Shields Daily News wrote an article titled If You See an Angry Ghost, It's Kitty, which read Kitty, the satin-gowned ghost of Willington Quay, must be angry if she is still around. During excavations at her old haunt, the Flower Mill, where R, Hood, Haggy and Son Limited rope works now stand, workmen came across a 150 year old steam driven millstone, and have made it a garden feature outside the works canteen. It has been christened Kitty Stone. The millstone, which weighs around 15 cubic weight, and measures 4 feet in diameter is one of the first of its kind, A plaque on it states that it was found during excavations for a new boiler house on the site of the Old West Mill. In this area formerly stood a flour mill owned by Mr Joseph Proctor and Haunt of the Willington Ghost. Kitty Proctor, she would be about 200 years old today, was supposed to have been murdered in the mill says 68 year old Mrs Mary Irving of Merlin Crescent Rose Hill, who used to live in flats adjoining the mill. The ethereal Kitty dressed in a white satin gown was seen by many people, according to early reports. Blood-curdling accounts of mysterious happenings have also been given from time to time. She appears, however, to have been quiet for the past half-century. Since the millstone was erected in the canteen grounds the other day, there have been no tales of seeing Kitty perched on it, yet. This appears to be the first mention of the ghost being named Kitty Proctor, with the origin story of being murdered at the mill, a tale which is just that a tale with no root in actual history, as the Proctor lineage is available for all to read in census records, and there simply wasn't a Kitty Proctor. The next mention of Kitty that I can find appears in a 2011 publication, though that book itself refers to a blogspot.com article that has since been taken down. The 2011 publication cites an origin story for Kitty, that of a woman named Catherine DeVore, known as Kitty to her friends, who in 1902 died in an accident in which her scalp was torn from her head the rollers of the rope factory. Unfortunately this puts the incident of her demise nearly twenty years after Kitty was first mentioned in the press, so this origin can be put to one side, as well as the fact that no one by the name of Catherine DeVore was living anywhere in the area from 1891 to 1911 according to the census information. The alleged incident also doesn't appear in local press from the time, and a grisly incident like that would certainly have been picked up by reporters. So this brings us to a close looking at the case of Willington Mill, or should I say Willington Mill House. To close the episode though, I'll take us back to 1840 and Drury's own account of his ghost hunt at the house. Sunderland, July 13th, 1840 Dear Sir, I hereby, according to promise in my last letter, forward you a true account of what I heard and saw at your house, in which I was led to pass the night from various rumours circulated by most respectable parties, particularly from an account by my esteemed friend Mr. Davison, whose name I mentioned to you in a former letter. Having received your sanction to visit your mysterious dwelling, I went, on the 3rd of July, accompanied by a friend of mine named T. Hudson. This was not according to promise, nor in accordance with my first intent. As I wrote you, I would come alone. But I felt gratified at your kindness in not alluding to the liberty I had taken, as it ultimately proved for the best. I must here mention that, not expecting you at home, I had in my pocket a brace of pistols, determining in my mind to let one of these drop as if by accident, before the miller, for fear you should presume to play tricks upon me. But after my interview with you, I felt there was no occasion for weapons, and did not load them, after you had allowed us to inspect as minutely as we pleased every portion of the house. I sat down on the third story landing, fully expecting to account for any noises I might hear in a philosophical manner. This was about 11 o'clock p.m. About 10 minutes to 12, we both heard a noise, as if a number of people were pattering with their bare feet upon the floor. And yet, so singular was the noise, that it could not minutely determine from whence it proceeded. A few minutes afterwards, we heard a noise, as if someone was knocking with his knuckles among our feet. This was immediately followed by a hollow cough from the very room from which the apparition proceeded. The only noise after this was as if a person was rustling against the wall in coming upstairs. At a quarter to one I told my friend that, feeling a little cold, I would like to go to bed, as we might hear the noises equally well there. He replied that he would not go to bed until daylight. I took up a note which I had accidentally dropped and began to read it, after which I took out my watch to ascertain the time, and found that it wanted ten minutes to one. In taking my eyes from the watch, they became riveted upon a closet door, which I distinctly saw open, and saw also the figure of a female attired in greyish garments, with the head inclined downwards, and one hand pressed upon the chest, as if in pain, and the other, the right hand, extended towards the floor, with the index finger pointing downwards. It advanced with an apparently cautious step across the floor toward me, immediately, As it approached my friend, who was slumbering, its right hand was extended toward him. I then rushed at it, giving at the time, as Mr. Proctor states, a most awful yell, but instead of grasping it, I fell upon my friend, and I recollected nothing distinctly for nearly three hours afterwards. I have since learned that I was carried downstairs in an agony of fear and terror. I hereby certify that the above account is strictly true and correct in every respect. Signed, Edward Drury until next time have a good week and stay safe